You are listening to the Punk Theology Podcast. My name is Russ Shaw, your host. Episode 39, do we, do we got a treat for you, the listener, today. A fireside chat with the one and only Pete Rollins, author, speaker, the pyrotheologist himself from Northern Ireland, now lives in L.A., but he's originally from where these guys are from, the Stiff Little Fingers, Punk Rock, and Punk Theology. Wait, this is a talk show. We, I can't play that whole song. Uh, this is speech media. Although we do like the bumper promos that talk radio tends to use to emotionally charge a topic, as well as to edify and acknowledge the beautiful artistry that is the punk rock and the movement that continues to this day. And through the magic of technology, you can follow the bands, get notifications when they come to your town, info on new merch, that kind of thing. So, do we play the whole songs? No. We do, however, listeners, have a Spotify playlist. If you, uh, if you Spotify, search Punk Theology and uh, follow our playlist, man. It's punk rock. Well, most of it. All right. It's... <laughs> It's it's bumper music from the show. Punktheology.com is the website for this here social experiment slash podcast slash punk odyssey. Now, I feel like this episode needs some explaining. <laughs> There's some explaining to do when it comes to what you're about to hear. Uh, Steve, Arthur, and I went to see... Uh, Pete Rowland speak at a place called East Lake, and we talk about some of that in this conversation. And listen, we're all big fans of Pete Rowland, so we hear that he's speaking here in our little rainy, gloomy, during the rainy season part of the world, the Seattle metro area. And I know some people that Pete knows. One thing led to another. Pete doesn't just meet with everybody, all right? So there was... I'm not going to give away my secrets, all right? So, uh, But we got we got Pete on the Punk Theology podcast. Now listen, what you're about to hear was recorded in a bar, all right? And I want to do some more of these conversations. As a podcaster, um, I value authentic conversation over audio quality any freaking day, all right? But the audio quality isn't that bad, all right? I have a device. Um, it was fairly expensive. It works pretty well. If you heard my conversations with uh, Reverend Wendy or Jim Henderson, those were recorded in a coffee shop. This was recorded uh, over beers right there at McMinniman's Anderson School 
in the Seattle area. And if you're ever visiting the Seattle area, McMinimins is a, a place you got to see, man. It's an old school that this place, McMinimins, uh, from Oregon, they took it over. They transformed it into like an adult playground. Uh, but there's a swimming pool. There's kids can swim there too. Uh, tiki bar above the swimming pool, but that's, yeah, that's for the adults. Uh, the other parts of the school as a hotel, a movie theater. Anyway, that's McMinimins. Anderson School in Bothell, Washington. Uh, and of course, the views expressed on the Punk Theology podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of, right? You get it. Whatever. Who cares? <laughs> it's a little punk rock here. Did we ask for permission? No. Uh, but it was a beautiful place to have one of these conversations. Yeah, the ambience is really cool. We're actually in front of a crackling fireplace. And uh, listen, if you would like to give some feedback uh, about the sound quality and, and what you're hearing, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, punk Theology Podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter, there's at punk theology pod we have a facebook uh group page called punk theology pub on facebook you can search that out because listen we'd love to do more of these intimate authentic conversations like this but we'd also love to hear your feedback on those because this is a bit of an interactive talk show and we do care about what listeners are experiencing to some degree because, listen, when it comes to the confirmation bias in those talk shows out there, something must be Punk positivizes negativity, and by that means, yeah, it does. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Like my whole thing is um, that we, when we first start questioning stuff, we feel like we're unraveling. Yeah. But but then we discover that we're not. We're raveling. Unraveling means exactly the same as unraveling. Exactly the same to pull apart, but it doesn't have the negative on. You're not unraveling. You're raveling. And so, in one sense, what you do is you just positivize the negativity. You're going like, oh, the doubt, the unknowing. This, that's not bad. That's actually what. Yeah. And there's something about punk that there's an antagonist. In it, but it's a celebration of the antagonism. It's yeah. like it's hardcore, and yeah, I love it. So it's a good, it's yeah. a good. When their framework can help them kind of work through their traumas and difficulties, become basically become better people. Yeah. I think that's kind of the core of what you see in the Gospels. Because it's very hard to get a belief system out of the Bible. It says so many different contradictory things. Yeah, there's more stories than yeah. there are. It's not an instruction manual more than it's a, a, a series of novels, yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a series of stories written by a series of people. And whenever you, you know, parables are beautiful at, at, at disrupting how you think. I mean, parables aren't so much designed to tell you what to think, but rather to blow up who you think's inside, who you think's outside, what you think's right, what right. you think's wrong. Parables are so disruptive. They're kind of the opposite of a myth. Yeah. A myth is a story that tries to make sense of the world. Parables are like much more disruptive. They're like explosives in the world of meaning.
Steve and I meet with Pete first, talk with him for a while, and then Arthur and John join us a little bit later in the conversation. Those of you who don't know who Pete Rollins is, then it is my great honor to introduce Peter to you. PeterRollins.com is the website for what Pete does. As we are coming up on the season of Lent, Pete does a thing called Atheism for Lent, which he will talk about here in this conversation some. If that uh, doesn't pique your curiosity, uh, you can find out more about that at PeteRollins.com. PeterRollins.com. See that? Saved it right there. This man, as a philosopher, he has a PhD in philosophy. All right. The guy knows his stuff. He's a theologian. He's written a number of books. Uh, he's the pyrotheologist. I track with Pete a lot because I, too, uh, from the beginning of, of the work that I've done, have talked about my theology as sort of anti-religion. That, that's how I viewed Jesus, as a figure who was there to turn religion upside down. That's so why I track with Pete a lot. Peter is a prominent figure in what's being called today uh, like radical theology, the emerging, emergent movement, uh, the organic movement. Uh, Pete was studying and writing about deconstruction before deconstruction was cool, all right? He is also on the road right now with Rob Bell doing the Holy Shift Tour. As this is being recorded in February of 2018, marker in time. So yeah, man, I'm really excited to have Pete on the podcast because Pete is one of those guys who's making waves, out-of-the-box thinkers in theology and philosophy, uh, but not just that, in how other humans value one another how we can become more connected, more bonded with each other rather than otherizing and dividing. I'm way more interested in bridge builders than I am wall builders. And if these things interest you, if you value having strong opinions yet are thirsty for wanting to see more peace and harmony in the world... Hit that subscribe button, all right? We'd love to have you on board. Check out our website, punktheology.com. Uh, become a Patreon saint, a Patreon sinner saint. Uh, you can learn more about that uh, at punktheology.com. But yeah, man, leave a review and subscribe wherever you hear this podcast. I think it's pretty exciting. I'm going to shut up now, and we're going to get into this conversation with uh, Mr. Pete Rollins on the Punk Theology Podcast. Pete Rollins. Um, punk theology. So uh, we're trying to find a find a microphone stand. 
here as we're sitting at McMinniman. That's what makes this thing punk rock, dude. Mm, yeah. That's we're good. It's punk DIY. It's good. <laughs> That's how we go about it. So you just spoke at uh, at Eastlake right there. Uh, you know Ryan Minks and yep. How long have you known Ryan? I know Ryan for a while. I met him in Brooklyn uh, at a small bar uh, in uh, called Pete's Candy Store, and he told me he was kind of like this pastor of a like a large church, and that he was kind of going through some kind of changes in his thinking. Right. And uh, we were there because there's a small group that meet in Brooklyn that I was loosely part of called Revolution. It was just 12 people in the back of this bar, and uh, he happened to be there. I think he was running a church. Of about 8,000 people at the time and he was in a church of eight people <laughs> and saying that things were changing and he was trying to rethink how he thought about faith and religion and we started a friendship. Uh, he invited me out to talk to the leadership team and so I've been a small part of their journey Okay. Uh, only a small part, but hopefully, you know, I feel that it's uh, I, I've, I've been a part of that walk that they've done from where they were five years ago to where they are now, which is very different. You know, they had I think eight campuses um, yeah. and maybe you know eight thousand people, and you know they through all of their transitioning and changes, they're down to one campus. Uh, so it's a healthy number, like about eight hundred people, but they lost thousands mm -hmm. in their in their journey towards uh, what they are right in their present guys <laughs> and you've wrote some books uh, one of the books you wrote that I really enjoyed was the Orthodox heretic oh yeah yeah, yeah. and other impossible <laughs> tales yeah <laughs> and a lot of stories in that book and you you told one of those those stories today and it's it's interesting how this shift that is happening in Christian thinking in theology and it's interesting how this city, this area, is working on that. Because we're a pretty educated, kind of intellectual place. Yeah. People think a lot here. Yeah. It rains a lot. We drink yeah. a lot of coffee. It's like Ireland. They say anywhere there's a bit of rain, not too much sunshine, you generally find people are readers. Because yeah. there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in LA at the moment. It's too nice. to. It's yeah. hard to sit down with a good book whenever the sun's beating down on you. That's right. Yeah. You've got a bit of a tan. Do I? Which I've noticed. Wow, yeah. wow. Yeah, that's a first. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, also the the you wrote you wrote a book called the magician, divine magician, the divine yeah. magician. Yeah. explain that a little bit. That's one of your your current works. That yeah, that's my latest book. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's a book where I look at how magic works, a magic trick. Right. You know, usually, magic tricks have three parts, where there is an object, the disappearance of the object, and then the return of the object. Um, so it's called the, you know, if, if you've ever watched the pledge, the movie, you'll know it's there's the the uh, pledge, which is the object, the turn, yeah. which is the disappearance, and the prestige, which is the return. Um, and I, I talk about this as a good lens for understanding the kind of radical core of the Christian message, which is kind of the disappearance of a type of God and a type of understanding of the world, and then the reappearance of a different way of thinking about the world or being in the world. So in one sense, I explore how um, Christianity is often thought of as a worldview. It's a certain set of beliefs, certain way of thinking about the world, and I I look at the you know the death of that kind of idea, and then um, the idea of a Christianity, which is more about how we exist within the world, right. uh, how we interact with each other, rather than a set of beliefs. Right. That's in a nutshell. Yeah, <laughs> it's more about what. Uh 
you know, don't don't tell me what you believe. You you show me with your actions what you what you actually believe, which is a big idea around punk theology. It had me yeah. thinking about this project. Yeah, I mean, in particular for me, the truth of our beliefs is not even in our in what we do, because you can also act in ways that are inauthentic. But is in what's called what psychoanalysis calls the symptom. The, the truth of who we are is usually manifested in our symptoms, whether it's outbursts of anger or tears or night, nightmares at night or bad backs or that that what we cannot face in ourselves, the truths that we have speak in our bodies. Right. So a lot of my work is about how do we yeah, how do we come to know ourselves, not even through our actions and not through our beliefs, because here's the thing, it's it's weird for us today. We think that what we think in our minds is what we believe. When when our minds are our conscious beliefs are our def defences against what we believe. So, for example, I might say I love my parents, but then I have a dream where you know I, I I'm I'm really I'm trying to kill them, and then I realise <laughs> oh my goodness I resent them. But I don't think that you know I, yeah. I think everything's fine, and I discover that I have all this resentment. That we have all sorts of beliefs about the world and ourselves that we hide, um, that only come out um, whenever we're under pressure. Yeah. So for me, a lot of a lot of religion at its best is not telling you what to believe, but rather just bringing out what you already do believe, helping you confront yourself, confront your demons, confront your traumas, confront your are all of our weird beliefs. Right. You know. So um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's going to those scary places where where a lot of us tend to pull back from. Um, Steve and I, something you said in your, your talk today was you, you get a glimpse into people's windows, right? Like, uh, explain that a little bit more. Like, how, how, people that maybe counsel with you or let you kind of behind the counter in their own story. Mm -hmm. Religion, sometimes at its worst, religion can be a way to protect us from looking at our deepest fears, our our real beliefs, the, the things that motivate right, us and yeah. challenge us. But there's nothing wrong with that. We all have defenses. Like some of us go out and get drunk to not confront ourselves. Some of us throw ourselves into work. Some of us um, have obsessive compulsion disorders where maybe we have to have our garage completely perfect. You know, right. you know, we all have ways to avoid looking at the difficult things in life. The problem is when we don't look at those things, they return in our lives in right. bad ways. As they I fester. Say, like a they fester. time heals all wounds is bullshit. Yeah, right? yeah. They're just there's there's a timelessness to symptoms that, that where they just continue to fester, as you say. They continue to damage. They come out in all sorts of unhealthy ways. But for me, religion at its best, and there's there's also various forms of this. To so say you can find this at the poker table or the pub or you know as much as in church, more than in church sometimes. Right. But religion at its best can help you confront your doubts, your uncertainties, your traumas, your difficulties, um, and that's and so in other words, you can have rituals that really help you come to wrestle with those parts of your life and that for me is the most beautiful thing about religion whenever people's religion whatever it is conservative or progressive or humanist or whatever it is when their framework can help them kind of work through their traumas and difficulties become basically become better people yeah. I think that's kind of the core of what you see in the Gospels because it's very hard to get a belief system out of the Bible. It says so many different contradictory things. Yeah, there's more stories than yeah. there are. It's not an instruction manual 
more than it's a, a, a series of novels, yes, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, a series of stories written by a series of people. And whenever you, you know, parables are beautiful at, at, at disrupting how you think. I mean, parables aren't so much designed to tell you what to think, but rather to blow up who you think's inside, who you think's outside, what you think's right, what right. you think's wrong. Parables are so disruptive. They're kind of the opposite of a myth. Yeah. A myth is a story that tries to make sense of the world. Parables are like much more disruptive. They're like explosives in the world of meaning. They like what C.S. Lewis said, he said that that these stories. Um, he says he was asked why why he writes fiction, mm. and one of the things he said was uh, because fiction tends to get past people's watchful dragons yeah. without asking for permission. Yes, absolutely, <laughs> right. beautifully said. He was a very good right Belfast man as well, C.S. Lewis. So, yeah, uh, yeah. He, I grew up just around the corner from where he was born. Oh, um, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Fiction, stories, comedy, music—they're all ways to unlock things. Like you don't you don't listen to a musician and go like you know what what three points can I get out of this that tell me about the world you know a musician speaks a truth that is that is testified to in in the transformation it causes in you right so I think when theology tries to interpret the world it's not theology a theological interpretation that seeks to interpret the world is not a theological interpretation a theological interpretation is what transforms and renews the world right so it's very that's very very important is that you know that that a theological description is it's called performative language a performative language is a language that brings into reality what it speaks of so if I say I now pronounce you man and wife that doesn't describe something it brings something into reality so you know the two people aren't married until you say those words um, in a similar way for me theology kind of creates a world that invites us into a way of life a way of being right. um, that's transformative but if it's purely about kind of somehow thinking correctly about the world then you know there's nothing transformative about that well, what about philosophy because I see philosophy also as kind of like <clears throat> here's why I enjoy theology more than philosophy is because philosophy tends to engage the pain or tragedy in someone's life with a kind of a I don't give a shit sort of attitude. Like I saw a meme where there was this guy, like there's this guy laying on the ground, he's like having a heart attack, and this woman says, um, is there a doctor in the house? And this guy goes, I'm a doctor of philosophy. And she says, please help, this man is dying. And he says, aren't we all? Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So philosophy sort of has that kind of, doesn't it? Peter has like sort of, I don't give a shit attitude, or it's more, it's less personal, I suppose. Well, you know, it depends, because there's, there's a number of different types of philosophy. There's two primary types of philosophy called continental and analytic. Um, now, in continental philosophy, you have things like existentialism. Now, right. existentialism is deeply, deeply interested in you know, kind of what it means to be human and how to humanize. So, like, if you're an existentialist, you know, you're you're much more concerned with, you know, what it means to be and how to help people. And psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic theory is studied in philosophy, and it's a discipline very interested in, you know, what it means to be good. But you're right, other forms of philosophy are much more, like, the more scientific, like, they're, they're more interested in describing the world. Right. But so, yeah, if, you, if you're into existentialism, you're going to be much more interested in philosophy as a, as a technology of transformation. 
but you're a the I like theology because theology um, it has a practical dimension you know it, it's theology happens within a community it's a way of understanding a community but the problem is I don't think most of what you see today under the word theology I don't think is theology um, so that's the difference like I don't right. think what seminaries do is theology um, it's more biblicism or uh, their religionist kind of stuff right. theology for me is a deep study um, of in one way you could say ultimate concern theology is a study of what concerns us in an ultimate way and uh, how we interact with that how we find meaning in life I think when you're engaged in those discussions in a community you're doing theology but sometimes theology is reduced to apologetics for example so theology is reduced to just defending a particular tradition, right. contingent set of beliefs. We're trying to get you to buy into our thing. To something, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And a lot of American consumerism that, that falls on the brand, mm. you know, so, mm. like we have a brand we're trying to sell, and yeah. here's our sign, and here's our Jesus. And, and I think religion and, and consumerism are very closely connected today. Like, for me, um, there's a guy I like called Todd McGowan, a psychotherapeutic kind of philosopher theorist, um, but he says, you know, in, ca in consumerism, we're always driven by something that will satisfy us, something that will give us peace, that will get rid of anxiety, something that will basically answer the questions of life. So you see in consumerism, we're, we're compelled by either getting enough money or looking the right, right way or whatever. But religion also mimics this. Religion often offers something that will make us complete, whole, give us the answers. But I think the radical uh, message of Christianity actually is completely against that. It's completely against that message. It's actually more about grace, which is the radical acceptance of yourself in the midst of doubt, unknowing, and brokenness. So yeah, today in contemporary world, consumerism and, and confessional religion look very similar. Right. I mean, they have different objects. You know, it's not like one says, get the BMW, you'll be happy. The other says, get Jesus and you'll be happy. Yeah. But both of them are, are promising, kind of like, they're saying, you feel anxious and depressed and doubtful now. Well, if you only get to this, then everything will be great. Yeah. And that, for me, is a, is a betrayal of the, the truly radical message, right. which we all need, which is, no, there's nothing, nothing's going to, like, like, get you away from your suffering and anxiety and pain. You're going to have to look at those things. You're going to have to do business with your doubts and unknowing. You're going to have to make space for them, um, not run from them. Uh -huh. And that's grace. Grace is the acceptance that you're accepted, that right. you don't have to crazily pursue something. And we're obsessed with transformation uh, when maybe uh, what we need is a little bit more grace. Yeah, yeah. That's scary. That's a scary prospect for especially those that have been raised in the church is to face those fears and doubts because as, as I was raised in the church, those fears and doubts are your issues. Mm. And that there's somehow your your faith is dysfunctional. Yeah, yeah. And that it's not it's not God, it's not the world, it's you. Yeah. So that's yeah. a scary prospect. Yeah. For for folk. Steve was also uh, to 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 show Steve's window into this world that you're talking about here. Steve was the chaplain for the Seattle SuperSonics NBA team oh, back when we had an, an NBA team. So you saw some of that too, Steve. Like here's the people that got to the pinnacle of success in basketball, and they just had the same amount of shit as the rest of Absolutely. us. You yeah. know, they yeah. got to that place, and it wasn't the the mountaintop. Right? That's what I liked this morning when you said that. Is that I'm not okay, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's a radical. That, that's a scary. This, because 
in the church we've been brought up in that way. Yeah. You're not okay. Well, that's not okay. Yeah. 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 As opposed to you're okay. And that's where I think the consumerism comes in because you're not okay. We got a product for you. And I think that's maybe what you're touching on in your book, you know, about the prestige, yeah. right? Because there's a lot of people who are buying into, like, they saw, and then they get they get their heart broken, right? Yeah. Because they saw the guy um, turning the card over. Or we were talking about Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey did this uh, documentary on Netflix about playing Andy Kaufman. Oh, yeah, so it's very good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was good. At the end of, towards, spoiler alert, but towards the end of that movie... Um, Andy Kaufman goes to some place like overseas in China or something like that up in this hillside and, and they're doing this psychic surgery, right? Mm. And he sees the guy like pulling the chicken meat <laughs> from yeah. underneath the table or something and, and he smiles like, you know, Jim Carrey playing the Andy Kaufman character, Butch. I don't know if he was channeling or something. Yeah. It was, it's hard to... Mm. But there's something to that. Like he saw the guy pulling the chicken meat from under the counter and and he just smiled and went, oh, it's the turn, right? right. I fell for this bullshit thing. Yeah. And I think that, that maybe that's what we're seeing with a lot of this shift that's happening in culture is someone got their heart broke. Like, you think of the prosperity gospel, for example. Um, I fell into some of that. One thing I'd say is that like, the whole thing about seeing behind the curtain, like whenever we get disillusioned by one thing, we do tend to still just find, try to find something else. So a lot right. of people who say give up Christianity will then become like very evangelical humanists, for example. Or uh -huh. so, and, and although the belief system is very different, the way they hold it's the same. So a lot of us, we're always looking for something that will fill the gap. And if one thing doesn't work, we don't give up the search. We just grab something else and we move from one addiction to another, whatever it is. My work is about saying, well, uh, how do we break that very mechanism? So right. instead of conversion from one thing to another, how do we convert from conversion? How do we like go, okay, we need to actually stop for a second, ask why we're so obsessed with you know, getting the answer, the thing that will fix us, and, and actually do the hard work, which are people who, are, who have addictions, they have to, like AA, yeah. you have to, one, you experience radical grace, so the very first thing you experience in AA is you're accepted, right? So that's yeah. step zero. There's a step zero before step one, and step zero is you're in a room of people who understand you and appreciate you, yeah. you don't have to do anything. Don't exactly. Have to, don't have to do anything. I heard one guy say it's like walking, like feeling like a three-legged dog all your life, yeah. and walking into a room full of three-legged dogs. Yeah, nice, <laughs> nice, that's it. And so suddenly you're like, oh, and I'm accepted, and I'm okay, and yeah. I'm not okay, and that's okay. Yeah. And, and when, I might take years of going to that before you even go, you experience the acceptance. Because that, that's what Tillich talks about grace. It's not just acceptance, it's accepting you're accepted. So I can accept you, but if you can't accept that acceptance, you haven't felt it. So in AA, eventually you accept that you're accepted, but then you have to do the hard work. You have to go, ah, I'm going to have to like say sorry to some people. I'm going to have to make amends for some of the things I've done. Yeah. Um, and it, that's the hard work. Um, if, if we don't do that hard work, we're just going to look for some other easy answer. Exactly. You know, so, but I do, so for me, Christianity at its best is not just disillusioning us of one correct answer. 
It's it's to try to get us to the point where we find salvation from the correct answer, right. the salvation from the tyranny of happiness. One thing I've said before, but is this is we it's great to be, have freedom to pursue what will make you happy. That's great, but we also need freedom from the pursuit of happiness. And the church for me is not the place where you're free to find the thing that will make you happy. The church at its best is offers us freedom from the pursuit of happiness, freedom to be, to be in our brokenness and difficulties. But here's the irony, when you can do that, you will find yourself much happier, much more joyful, you'll find yourself having a much richer life. Right. Yeah. When you can just take a breath. And so it's something we say in punk theology, one of our little taglines is uh, rehab for certainty addiction. Mm. <laughs> you know? I like that's that. Kind of what, you're, I like that. what you're doing, right? It's pulling apart. Because yeah. we, we see that in, in recovery circles, too. Mm. And that's one of the reasons, like, I'm, I'm having a beer here today mm. while we're at McMinimans. I'm having a Terminator Stout. Yeah. Throw out a shout out to <laughs> McMinimans. Um, now, that's. That's controversy on recovery circles mm. because you're never supposed to drink yeah. again. But one of the issues I had in recovery circles is scapegoating the thing. Oh yeah, yeah. Because if I can escape this thing, and this is this was my story. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I went into was rehab for alcohol, where I was taught that I have a disease, that alcohol is the devil, that if I ever give myself over to the devil alcohol again, it will it will envelop me and take me yeah. over, and I will have lost all will of myself. Yeah. Well, I call bullshit on that. Yeah. Because I went from alcohol to crack cocaine and methamphetamine, uh, which yeah. wasn't better. Yes. And really what it was, Pete, was like like you talk about. And you're one of the few people who talks about it. Yeah. You're one of the few. That's what I love about you, yeah. is you're one of the few people who go into that place. And I call it, I call it sacred space, mm-hmm. Pete. Because there's some places that we're not going to let certain people into. Yeah. But you walk right into that sacred space and call bullshit on some things. Yeah. And, and again, so I don't have to drink myself unconscious yeah. anymore. Well, that's the thing, like for me, like an addiction is a complicated thing, obviously, but, but often if someone is addicted to some drug or whatever, it, that is not the problem. That is the solution to a problem. There's something has gone wrong in the person's life, some trauma, some difficulty, and the way that they hold themselves together is through the addiction. Now, right. the, the solution to the problem itself becomes the problem. It becomes even worse <laughs> than what is hiding. But if we don't understand what's what's provoking and evoking the addiction, then a person gets off one addiction and they'll grab another one. Yeah. The, the real difficult work is to go, why Why am I addicted first? What am I running from? What am I not confronting? And that, that's where you need friends. That's yeah. where you need community. That's exactly. where you need grace for, for people to go, right, you know what, They're getting drunk, you're doing that for a reason. Like Maybe there's something yeah. that we need to talk about. Because I've seen people get off alcohol and then they take up CrossFit. It's even worse. One day you're drinking too much, the next day you're flipping tires. Right. You know, if you have Flipping out your knees. Yeah. You're yeah. double knee surgery. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if you don't deal with the issue, you'll just replace one addiction with another. And maybe yeah. it'll be a healthier addiction. I know people who got off alcohol and took up Diet Coke and they drink 12 Diet Cokes a day. It's a bit healthier maybe, but not much. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> not much. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. yeah, but it's also being honest about your own, your own 
chemical romances. That's yeah. what I, how I like to refer to yeah. it. Yeah. Is I have a relationship with alcohol. Yeah. Now we live in in Washington State. We're in the Seattle area. They've legalized marijuana here. Mm. I don't smoke weed today. Yeah. Even though when I was 18, Pete, if you would ask me, like top 10 things you really love to do, smoking weed would have been on that yeah. list. <laughs> yeah. But now that I'm 49, mm. I'm just not the best version of myself mm. when I'm high yeah. on marijuana. Yeah. Now I don't judge people who mm. smoke marijuana. Yeah. Just like some recovery people are totally like like whoa well Russ has a drink or two is that should you be talking about that yeah. well I wouldn't drink if I wasn't the best version of myself yeah. drinking yeah. and I've had to be honest about that and pull back the curtain of my own life yeah yeah and that's something that that you touch on too and I'm not shy about talking about this uh, I've talked about this before but it wasn't until I was 38 years old Pete that I told another human being that I had been pretty brutally sexually assaulted right. as a kid and that's one of the things about recovery that, again, it's sort of like church, and it's sort of like you, what you touch on with the magician, right? Yeah. Um, we're sold sobriety. Mm-hmm. If you can get sober, then you'll you'll have arrived. Yeah. And for me, no, it wasn't that. I had to go into that dark place. Yes. I didn't want to talk about. Yeah. You want to talk about this? No, I don't want to talk about yeah. it. That's and why. It, that's why it's so understandable that you or someone else. You know, gets addicted to some sort of drug because you're really having to deal with incredible, incredible trauma. And and in one sense, sometimes we can't. We're not in the place where we can start to do that work. And and addiction is a way to to numb the pain. It's a painkiller in many ways. The only problem being, eventually, we have to do the work, or we'll end up in the gutter. We'll end up dead. You know. So, you know. That makes sense is that for a while someone, and people use religion in the same way, things happen and they use religion as a, as a way to escape their suffering, but eventually we have to do work with that yeah. stuff or it'll kill us. Exactly. We look at our monsters or we become a monster, you know, we look at our suffering or it, it destroys us. Exactly. Well, one of the things that we've encountered is a lot, and we discussed this a little bit on Thursday night, our last podcast was, is it possible to adhere or believe in the Christian faith apart from shame and guilt? Mm. So how many, what would be your encouragement to those that deal with shame and guilt? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sort of like that that scene of the guy whipping himself, right? Like, yeah. if I could just, this will make me feel better. Yeah. See, for me, yeah, for me, shame and guilt. So guilt is simply a term for feeling that you're not living up to something. So basically, to be human is to live between who you are and who you'd like to be and between what you have and what you'd like to have. Like, I can't go into the details of why exactly, but but basically, you know, if I have a friendship with you guys, it's not just with who you are, it's also with who you'd like to be. You know? And we experience a certain anxiety about living in that space and we live in a society where we're constantly told that we can get out of that space and we can be who we want to be and we can have what we want to have if only we follow these five steps if only we do this or that and guilt is just a technical term for the experience of not being what you imagine you should be now interesting for me that's a secular notion like the whole point about Christianity, and Luther understood this, is that Christianity is the freedom from guilt, which means Christian and the technology of that is grace. Uh, the whole thing in Christianity is that you don't have to be anything. And this is this, and this is the crazy thing that Paul talked about. He says the law makes you want to transgress the law. So the more I say you shouldn't do something, the more you want to do it. Right. But when when someone fully accepts you and says it's okay you actually find that you can be freed from more negative behaviors whenever you're radically accepted. 
So for me, Christianity has something interesting to say about guilt, but guilt is exactly the problem that it should be, that Christianity should be addressing, not exacerbating, but that's the problem, you yes, know, it yeah. does exacerbate it, <laughs> sadly. Confessional theology does, but it shouldn't. Right, right. Yeah. right. Mm. It's interesting how I've seen guys who really struggle with pornography for a number of years and they're trying to do everything they can to hide it from their spouse or whatever, or it's blown up and their spouse found out about it. Yeah. And then shaming the behavior seems to make it even worse. Yeah, it just makes it, it grows it. Like, <laughs> exactly. Psychoanalysis this is well known where if you have, say, someone who, maybe they're sleeping around and they feel guilty, and they think, well, at least I feel guilty, otherwise I'd sleep around more. What you discover is as you get rid of the guilt, you get rid of the desire to sleep around. But yeah. the very obstacle that you think is kind of stopping you from doing it more is actually what's facilitating the desire. So grace and love and acceptance are the ways to, you know, to, to real transformation rather than guilt and shame, which, which do nothing. Right. Except for exacerbate issues and problems. You know. So you see Christianity as sort of the anti-religion, right? Yeah. I mean, and I do too. Yeah. I mean, in a nutshell, it's very simple. Like, so, from the very beginning, right? Let's take the Oedipus complex very quickly. So, the Oedipus complex in psychoanalysis is a guy wants to sleep with his mum. He doesn't know it's his mum, but he wants to sleep with his mum. <laughs> his father gets in the way, right? So he kills right, his father. This is Freud, a lot of Freud. This is Freud, yes, it's Freud. Yeah. So he, he kills his father, sleeps with his mother. He thinks it's going to be wonderful, but it's a disaster, right? Right. So that, the reason why that story is important in psychoanalysis, a simple way of reading it, is the mother is a symbol of returning to... You know, the, the oceanic experience of one that's kind of returning to the womb. The mother is the kind of like getting what you need in order to be whole, right? right. The father is what gets in the way, uh -huh. and the person kills the father, they get what they want, and it's a disaster. And I, in, in also psychoanalysis, there's a thing called the superego, and the superego is the voice that keeps telling you, you should do this, that, the other thing, and then you'll be good. You should be nicer to your mom, you should go out more, you should be having more right. sex, whatever it is. The superego is always badgering you to, to get the thing that will make you whole. Now we think that by obeying the superego, we'll be happy. In psychoanalysis, the idea is, no, you got to get rid of the superego. The superego's not got your best interests at heart. Now, for me, the Bible starts with an Oedipus story, right? a Jewish Oedipus story. You've got Adam and Eve walking around a garden. You've got a piece of fruit and a prohibition, right? right. And the piece of fruit, it's like, it's, it's desirable because of the prohibition. And there's this snake that says, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God, which means whole and complete. You know, you'll right. lack the lack, you'll be whole and complete. And so what happens is, uh, this, in psychoanalysis, you've got the superego. In theology, you've got the serpent. The serpent, the serpentine voice in the Bible, is the voice that keeps telling you, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and then you'll be whole and complete. We think we have to obey the serpent, but the technology of grace exorcises the serpent. It gets rid of it. So the very, the very foundation of the of the Jewish tradition, which is obviously Christianity, is the very foundation of it is an eatable complex which is saying to people any community that tells you that you need to do x y or z to get rid of doubt unknowing guilt that's the devil that's well, a serpent yeah. that's serpentine in psychoanalysis that's a superego in theology that's the serpent right. so right that's who jesus was always after the pharisees yeah. for that reason right yes. so that's and then you know i think this is what i do in divination go but that's exactly the problem that i think christianity sets to address is that instead of us dramatically pursuing the thing that will make us happy we find freedom from that pursuit and it's right. it's, it's hard baked into the very opening of the text 
And by the way, the crucifixion is just a remaking of it. So in the, in the Garden of Eden, you've got three areas. You've got the garden, and then you've got the prohibition, and then you've got the apple. In the garden, in, in the Temple of Jerusalem, you have the Court of Gentiles. You have a massive curtain, and then you have the Holy of Holies. Right, that's and so true. You have the idea of kind of getting you know, the Holy of Holies is what you need to get. And in the crucifixion, you have the ripping of the curtain and the realization that there's nothing in there in in the in the Holy of Holies, which then leads you to the third step, which is oh, the sacred is not an object that you can grasp. The sacred is the depth dimension in all objects. The sacred is found in the depths of life itself. Right. So anyway, so in other words, for me, Christianity is fundamentally a rejection of this crazy narrative of of shame and guilt and perfection. Right. Well, that if you go good. into the holy and holies, you're going to be like raised a lost ark, and your eyes yeah. will burn out. <laughs> yes, right. You know, some gold gas in there. You know, it's like gold exactly. Gas. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the fact that you're called, you know, punk theology because uh, I'm a big fan of punk, and for me, punk. Is, is not so much a musical form, but rather that which breaks what we think music is. Exactly. It's what like it's so it, it's what Dadaism is in art, punk in music, Christianity for me is as well. Christian like parables and Christianity don't kind of give us a new way of thinking. They blow up. It blows up how we think. It really revolutionizes our thought. So for me, Christianity and punk are intimately intertwined. Right. So you know, I'm excited That's to awesome. see what these guys do. That's yeah, awesome. yeah. And you're so you're doing a, a thing with Rob Bell. Yeah. In a, a few months or? Well, actually, all year. It's a tour that started okay. um, last month, and we're going to all 2018. We're going to probably hit most of most big cities in America over the course of the year. All right. Um, cool. Called Holy Shift. Holy which Shift. Is, yeah. Which <laughs> is funnily enough, all about what we're talking is. The holy shift for me is uh, is realizing that you don't have to shift, and right. in realizing that you you start to shift. Yeah, exactly. So, I think so true. That is so true. That's exactly where I am. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And as we've talked, a lot about, of people are. A yeah, lot of people are. They just don't have words for it. Yeah, yeah. they're just realizing that there's something happening. I like that holy yeah. shift. Yeah, holy shift. Which Rob is close Bell. to what I said when he asked me to do this tour. It was like holy shit. We got a lot on your plate, as it were, right? Ah, uh, yeah. This year, yeah. Got, yeah. So I've got atheism for Lent coming up, which. Is it beautiful? People think that atheism and theology are enemies, oh, but they've no. always been in a dance. They're lovers. That yeah. it's a passionate love affair. Like they fight a lot, but yeah. oh man, and and they 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 suffer when they're not together. <laughs> atheism becomes like a, a positivistic adolescent cry against superstition, and theology becomes like a, a a discipline with as much credibility as astrology. But when when they're together, oh sparks fly. <laughs> so I do uh, I do forty days where we read these great critiques of religion, not to judge them, but to let them judge us, nice. and to discover that, that theology and atheism have a, a very rich and interesting relationship. Yeah, yeah that I've seen that in a lot from. of recovering addicts, like yeah. a lot of recovering addicts have to, I think it's almost like a natural reaction to just go, oh this is all bullshit, and to take the whole thing and to throw it on the ground, yeah. but then what, what do you have? Yeah. Because no one's really truly naked, right? You're going to put something else yes, on. Exactly. Yeah. And atheism. We all need symbols. Yeah. yeah. And so that's one thing we do with the when, when it's six of us guys. We sit in a room. We're usually drinking beer, whiskey, smoking cigars, and we're disagreeing on things that get to a heart level, yeah. right? So the fact that the six of us guys talk about men, stuff men aren't supposed to talk about yeah, yeah. can stay in the room with difference. I know. <laughs> well, that's where the truth is. Yeah. Like, the truth of what you're doing is not in the the um, what you decide. It's in the fact that you wrestle together. That's a very Jewish notion, which is that the what the truth of, of 
the idea is religion is a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. Yeah. It's a heated conversation, it's a conversation we get passionate about, but it's actually being willing to be part of the conversation that kind of includes you in the group. It's like, are you passionate enough yeah. to sit and talk about this stuff? And that's why the Irish and the Jewish, by the way, are God's chosen people, because we love a good fight. We love a good disagreement, <laughs> and we love a good fight, yeah. and that's good. But you can fight fair. Yeah. So there's a few people that have... have uh, Expressed interest in being on the podcast, who, who I know wouldn't be a good fit just because I know they're in they're inclined to be right. Mm, right like yeah. if you wanted to come into this conversation and be right, like you would hate this. Yes, this yeah. isn't a debate. Like yeah. we're not trying to be right. That's what makes us punk, Pete. Yeah. Is we don't give a shit about being right. Yeah. Like we're more interested in the wrestling yeah. and how I can wrestle and how we can pull this thing. But without, because you know, you know the, the guy who's yeah. certainty addicts, like yeah. they can't be in the room almost. Yeah. Well, you know the old Jewish parable about you know two rabbis are arguing about a passage in the Torah, and they've been arguing for twenty years, and finally God gets so annoyed at this, God comes down and says, "I'll tell you what it means." And in a rare moment of the unity, the two rabbis turn to God and say, "You clear off back to heaven, bugger off, and let us argue about it." <laughs> and that beautiful parable is like that. In, in Christianity, we're often obsessed with what does this verse mean, but in Judaism, it's like, hold on a second. A great piece of art does not have a singular meaning. It's so infused with meaning that to reduce it to one singular meaning is to misunderstand it. It's more about are you transformed by the art? Right. Are you in conversation with the art? Um, does it speak to you in ever new ways? And that's how they see the tradition as like a piece of art that is so rich in meaning that 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 the idea of like reducing it to some singular meaning is just it makes it one dimensional. Right. So what you're what you guys are modeling with the six of you coming together and having a, a drink and a good old fight is like the beauty of what theology is at its best, at its healthiest. Wonderful. Suppose we come back to you in uh, in uh, just a moment or two. So, this is the time when, John and Arthur walk in. The show resumes as the punks, press the record button, again. Stand by, re-connecting. Sounds like that. Like, in the best way. Alright, we're recording again. <laughs> well, just in case we say anything else, just for fine. All the profound stuff's over. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Edit, I'm an editor, yeah. is what I do. Uh, Tie the whole yeah. thing together. Yeah. So you, he, he, uh, John, 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 yeah. John pointed me out to 
about your material mm -hmm. when we were going through the whole Mars Hill thing. And Mars Hill started started coming apart and stuff like that. John started going to an Orthodox church, and it was funny how I was yeah. I was I was starting to really get into the Buddhism and this Eastern. And then John's like, you know, Christianity is an Eastern religion, right? <laughs> and then he pointed me to some of your material. Like, you're the one that sent me Orthodox Heretic. Oh, yeah. I was like, dude, I love that. All uh, the stories and that's right. How you, you, you're the one that pointed me to him. Oh, really? Well. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at me. I'm, 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 I'm the fanboy that points people <laughs> to you. Appreciate that. Good, uh, yeah. um, well, yeah, it was during a time of, you know, we were coming through a period of asking questions and grappling with things and People reading you guys need a beer? Ask these guys. you want anything to drink uh yeah what's okay. terminator stout terminator stout you, you want to that's what this is that sounds great nice. thank you yeah edit that out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no you're gonna give me minimums there they're due but <laughs> but we all we all sort of seem to land in different places mm -hmm. but have commonality and common ground and i think that's where we hold the space and we do what we do and and so I, I turned out to be like the token postmodern Eastern Orthodox guy, mm -hmm. but I'm horrible at it like, like I'm, <laughs> because I'm not very dogmatic. Yeah. And and so I hold my faith with an open hand, but it's still real for me. Like there's yeah. still something there. I always say that I've tried to shake the Jesus thing, but I can't. Yeah. And, yeah, and yeah. in some ways, I wish that I could. Like yeah. I've tried to. Yeah. Um, but it is real for me in a sort of metaphysical way. Yeah. Uh, it holds me, but but that's the way. It, that's where I've landed, and it's really uncomfortable to be there because I'm not that dogmatic. Because yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people come into liturgical or historical churches and they bring their evangelical fervor and zeal with them, and that's yeah. never really been me. But I do. A lot of it's aesthetic. Like I think it's beautiful, and some of that holds me. And what holds me too are, are the rooted, like the rootedness of it. Yeah. Um. So. It's, but it's interesting engaging your your work because we were even talking like like coming over here is like is dogma important for Christians and and is it okay to hold that with an open hand or even Arthur is telling me about the East Lake experience I've never been to East Lake I uh, think they're doing some interesting stuff but but on some level like um, at what point does an experiment become so nebulous and open that it ceases to be anything distinctively Christian and that's okay but it's just a question like what does that even look like and how did people even move forward in it yeah. well, uh, what is Christian well the more pragmatic questions I even ask as a parent like I have four kids yeah. is how do you raise them and is it is it important to raise them with these distinctives and values and what does it look like what, what does postmodernism look like with your kids like hey just have at it and figure it out <laughs> so yeah all yeah. these questions yeah. and yeah. I'm talking a lot yeah. but yeah. that's my introduction yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah I think I mean working out the relationship between our language and symbols because we all need language and symbols yeah. and yeah. what they point to potentially when the orthodox are huge on this I mean the orthodox out of all the traditions the orthodox are the most like they make a distinction between the energy and the uh, essence of yes. God um, and that's a lot to do with you know what what your, your, the symbols and how you can speak and how you can experience God but then also how in a sense these symbols and these words don't grasp they grasp and yet remain God remains at a distance so yeah so someone like Paul Tillich uh -huh. he's, he's like I'm a big fan of you know, but he's a he, he thinks it's invaluable to have these traditions 
but but he says but the problem is just if they become idolatrous i.e. Yeah. they stop functioning to draw you into the, the transcendent and yeah, and I know of all traditions, you know, the Orthodox are, I think, they have a very strong mystical tradition. Big time. Yeah. That's what yeah. drew me to it in a lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. So they, they have a real, and that's the thing, it's a, strangely both a, a very um, high regard for the symbols and the words and the language of the tradition, but also a real sense in which protecting people from thinking that those somehow grasp their reality that they open up that they invite people into. Yeah. yeah. So like, what, what I'm hearing you say is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is it like dogma has its place, but when it starts becoming idolatrous, then maybe that's where the problem is? Or? Yeah, and for me, it's like it's working out the relationship. I, I think the philosopher Derrida said it very well when he talked about law and justice. He says, for him, the law is what you write. So the law is our legal system, and justice is what the law is trying to be. Right, at its best. Mm-hmm. But he says that every time you write the law, it's not just. It mm-hmm. always falls short. That's right. why we're on. That's why we rewrite, rethink it, and we reinterpret it. But without the law, you'd have no ability to talk about justice. And yet, uh, justice isn't articulated in the law. So, so weirdly, they're both completely intertwined. Like how we talk about justice is in relation to, you know, how we write justice down. But weirdly. That's never justice. As soon as you write it down, that's, right. that's what he calls the undeconstructible justice. He says, justice is undeconstructible, but as soon as you speak it, it's deconstructible. <laughs> so, so it's right. really interesting, like the dialect. We argue, argue where, about the ideas around it, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where's the gap in that failing? Is is it in our ability to articulate it? Is it in our ability to anticipate every? gray area that, that the law doesn't make room for is it just our inability yeah like, and he would say and this is where like there's a few you know like so Derrida is doing you know you, you'd have to there's someone like Jean McMarion for example he's, he's well he's Catholic but he's very mystical he would say it differently Derrida would say you never capture justice because justice is a promise of something still to come so his whole thing is just it's like when you say democracy as soon as someone says i i have democracy you're like no you don't that's why in the buddha say you meet the buddha on the road kill him mm. because in a sense as soon as you meet the buddha on the road it's not the buddha the buddha is in some respects always to come always to arrive so for derrida freedom democracy justice there's something about those words that have a promise but the promise is always to come like, he calls it messianic. Hmm. He says there's because messianic is always there's a to come. There's an eschatological dimension. Right. But but a mystic will say it slightly differently from Derrida. So Derrida is very Jewish in his thinking. So it's always the the messianic to come. Jean Luc Marion says that that for him as a more orthodox guy, he says the words always fail because it's like looking at the sun you go blind it's not there's a lack but there's an overabundance like you're a ship sunken in the depths of the ocean the ocean contains the ship and the ship contains the ocean but the ocean contains all of the ship and the ship contains a fragment of the ocean so he says the reason why words never grasp the the transcendent reality is because they are the, the, the transcendent reality is so saturated that that it falls short so there's different ways of understanding it, but all of them want to protect from us thinking that our language captures some essence of reality. That, that really touches on what your work did for me. Yeah. So uh, 
it was like three years ago now, and ended kind of a five-year stint where my entire life exploded through various forms of things going horribly wrong with uh, almost every aspect of my life. And uh, I, had, I had a very conservative Christian Midwest background, and my entire faith just unraveled. And that idea that uh, that the words don't contain everything, but if you don't have the words, yeah. you also have a hard time understanding. Like, yeah. we, we think with language. We think with language. Yeah. And, and you gave me a lot of language to understand why my my faith failed me. Yeah. Um, and, a, and a construct to see the world in a way that wasn't just fully nihilistic after that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and and it was interesting to see today because I, I listened to a number of podcasts you'd done with Rob Bell a few years ago. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, you guys were kind of talking about what was happening in American Christendom and kind of your views on it and and seeing East Lake today was like, oh, maybe that's what that looks like. Because it was almost so ethereal and nebulous of like, you kind of were poking holes at what has been and kind of its failings and weakness. But I'm like, I have no idea what that would look like. Yeah. Um, How do you go forward from there? Yeah. yeah. And then I, and I saw East Lake today and I'm like, okay, this is very different. Uh, yeah. Not what I'm used to. Yes. Um, it was interesting though, because I still have this same assessment. So I'm the, I'm the one still self-proclaimed agnostic of the group yeah. I still don't feel like like John talks about not being able to kick the Jesus thing I <laughs> like it's a I disease I love the Lord but yeah there's yeah. something there like, uh, I don't feel like the need yeah. for that yeah. and, and and I don't know if that's just because it's not there yet or I'm still too wounded or if it's just that maybe some people don't maybe I'm getting my community fulfilled enough with like these yeah. guys to where I don't I don't yeah. need that structure I don't know well I, I, I've heard um, but it wasn't as offensive as every other version yeah. of Christianity that yeah. I've seen recently yeah I've heard your story where you talked about having a born again experience oh yeah how do you make sense of that now because I think I, I think those of us that have that did you Jesus do the altar thing, call, Pete? I actually did. Yeah, 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 <laughs> okay. yeah, 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 yeah. three times. I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. But but you know, because I, I think for those of us that have had transcendent or mystical experiences or born again experiences, and, and I, it's something Arthur and I talk about a lot. I think that some people are more hardwired for it. I think sometimes mm. that's just a personality thing. Honestly, yeah. I mean, I'm a very sensual, sensory kind of person. Uh, you know, our Arthur gets turned on by databases and computers. It's yeah. like, no, I'm, not, I'm teasing a little bit, but, but yeah. you, you know, um, it's not false. <laughs> but but where where someone might have an inclination, or maybe your antennas pick up more signals that way, I don't know. But but you know, you try to make sense of those things and maybe dispel them or, or have like a rational kind of explanation for them. But what? How do you process that now, or what do you? How do you make sense of that now on this yeah. side of where you're at and yeah. the work you've done? For me. Religious experience in its core is not an experience of something. So you haven't experienced something like taking drugs or whatever. Right. But a religious experience is that thing that trans that which transforms your experience of everything. Right. So instead of having ten experiences, right. now an eleventh. A religious experience is what changes how you experience. It's a all come ten to things. Jesus moment. We call it in uh, recovery circles. Right. Is that right? Oh, yeah, what yeah, do you yeah. mean? Does that? What is that? I've, when when you reach maybe a rock bottom point. Yeah. Like I don't like rock right. bottom so much because I've also seen addicts who are waiting to get there. Uh, like yeah, it's yeah, a fucking yeah. bus or something. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's oh I'll stand in the street. Maybe it'll hit me. Yes. Like but, but there, what, what you're talking where, about is yeah. yeah that moment when you go you wake up or somebody brings a smelling salt or is that what you're talking about? Yes, that is. <laughs> that, that is exactly it. And for me, that experience, again, like my work is kind of weirdly 
bracketing out atheism, theism, sacred secular, but but not that experience. That experience, I think, is a fundamental experience that humans can and do have. That that you can experience a fundamental reshifting of how you see things. And it's very rare. Happens very rarely. Um, so that's kind of what happened when I was like 17, something like that. You know? Okay. So, but um, but I'm very much weirdly like what you can't doubt is you know something happens it transforms like, right but what you can't you can, like here's the undeconstructible deconstructible we we're talking about <laughs> the undeconstructible is like oh you know my life has changed for whatever reason when this happened the, the, the deconstructible is well every time I try to understand it that can be legitimately critiqued but but what what you can't critique is in a sense that oh I feel like I've been changed so that's for me what religious experience is but for me it transcends like you don't have to be a theist you know to to obviously believe that in fact in psychoanalysis that experience is what they're aiming for sometimes mm. they're aiming for that weird moment when <coughs> the stars align and and you just oh see things differently I mean I think grace does it by the way the radical acceptance when you can accept mm. that you're accepted and by the way I'd be interested have you ever read like I think you would like The Courage to Be Paul Taylor's Courage to Be because it's a theology The Courage that, to what? The Courage to Be I've just done a book study I'll send you all my talks on it if you want but you have to technically <laughs> sign up for them I'll give you them for free oh um, nice so, I'll um, eat it up yeah <laughs> but he's just in light of what you were saying it's like what interestingly Tillich does is he he says, and this is what, this is what Eastlake are trying to do. So I'm trying to give, help Eastlake get a language for what they're doing. Paul Tillich's whole thing is that, that when you enter a place of radical questioning, authentic kind of questioning, think, whatever, you're affirming, you're in that questioning, you're affirming life. You're saying, you're affirming meaning, as in, I think this is bullshit. You're affirming truth you're, you're showing concern for the world yeah. until it says you don't answer it says that is itself that's the that's what the church should be about the church should be about helping us affirm that that in the midst of the doubt and the unknowing we are showing a concern for the world and a concern for the conversation and he says uh, and for him he calls out the God after God mm. but he doesn't mean a theistic God necessarily you can call it that but you don't have to he just says that 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 the very affirmation of life that comes from authentic questioning is um, is a beautiful courage to be. Yeah. So uh, you know, that, I, love that I, that, I like that when you look at like anger, like or triggers. We just did a podcast on the topic of triggers, and it's sort of like I don't give a shit. Now tell me why I still give a shit. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. yeah, like yeah, why yeah, am I yeah. so angry yeah. about not giving a shit? Yeah. Because I obviously still give a shit. Yes, yes. And it, what you're saying is, it's getting into that space. That's right. Like there's a space right there, yeah. and it's it's like a nerve, like that tooth that fucking dentist gets with a hook. That's and it. you go ah, and you're like, let's talk about that. Yes. Right. That's it. Until it's not doing a gotcha. So in in like there's an evangelicalism. There's a funny thing that they do, and you'll probably know this coming from all, all <laughs> companies. But uh, uh-huh. is the idea that you know if, obviously if someone says there is no truth you go ah there is a truth there is no truth you know like no philosopher's ever been caught out by that but, but that's it that's a kind of a gotcha that's a gotcha yeah, like, oh yeah, yeah. You, you don't think life is meaningful well you must there's one meaningful thing and that life's not meaningful till it's not saying that because he's saying well we get to a point especially he, for him the 20th century in the europe if you you can't have gone through the history of european kind of history without coming to authentic doubt oh and yeah questioning and authentic what no? doubt, doubt. doubt. Yeah. oh yeah yeah and, and he says this he says um, so you go into that but 
the person who's authentically questioning, they're not saying there's no truth, they're just saying like every, every time I question, I interrogate, things open up and um, I'm keeping open to that. And he says, well that is a beautiful affirmation of meaning. Now he's yeah. not doing a gotcha, he's just going, wow, look. So what he's taking is he's taking the kind of, somebody might go like, I'm questioning everything. And he's, yeah, and that's beautiful. Like, that's courageous. That takes courage. That's like, he says, what you're affirming in that questioning is life and meaning and beauty. And, and the church at its worst will try to answer the questions when what the church should be doing is cradling them and saying, and in its own way, orthodoxy does it, but orthodoxy does it in a confessional way. Mm-hmm. But, but, um, but there are other ways as well of doing it. Right. But, you know, orthodoxy it has a sophisticated way of cradling the question. Yeah. I do think sometimes it's too over affirmative. Sure. I'm, I'm a bit too deconstructive. I'm a bit too <laughs> European kind of. Yeah. Know, well, I, 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 I mean, you talk about language. I mean, I am too. One of the things that ruffles my feathers is coming from a sort of reformed background and all this sort of heavy-handed juridical language and the way they think of God and that punitive, retributive sense really ruffles my feathers. Orthodoxy has some similar language about judgment, but they don't mean it the same way. It's, it's much more about restoration, healing. Uh, it's, they see judgment in a more ontological sense, and they see salvation is, is for healing versus like a, you know, something in a courtroom. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, it's a, lot, Jesus. it's a lot healthier yeah. from a, like an existential point of view. But because of my background, I constantly have to get out like my dictionary and uh, my metaphorical dictionary to, because <laughs> to, there's all these words I have to retranslate. Yeah. Like they're saying these words that are troubling to me, but that's not what they mean. But you that's know, what yeah. I hear. And you know, you don't, you know, till it's main critique of mysticism, it's interesting, right? His main, so Tillich is actually, he's very sympathetic, not even sympathetic, uh-huh. he's like mysticism is a way to affirm existence, the courage to be all that. His only thing is he thinks that one that for 20, people who have gone through the 20th century, it's increasingly hard to be a mystic. Some people can still do it, but, but there's almost like an inherent questioning in our DNA, and he says that, that actually it's more, it's just, it's difficult. It's difficult. So, so Tillich's thing is, yes, mysticism is one of the disciplines and one of the disciplines in Christianity that, that really help people expand their minds, embrace the courage to be, embrace doubt, unknowing mm-hmm. complexity. But he said that, that, that the 20th century, the First and Second World War, with the Holocaust, and all that stuff, he said, it's like, it's like, it's very few people can find a natural resonance with it in the same way. So they can be mystical, but they they have to also make room for a radical doubt. That actually, you know, you read a lot of the original mystics, Simeon the Theologian, Meister Eckhart. Oh yeah, like, Meister Eckhart. They're, they're, Meister Eckhart's my favorite. But they do <laughs> yeah, have a, they do have a profound certainty that just doesn't ring so true in the 20th century. Yeah, it's you know, punk rock, right? Yeah. It gets to that punk thread where instead of because I think the the maybe the the bad part of that is getting to a numbness like I don't just I don't give a shit like just yeah. kill me now or yeah. whatever but I think that there's a there's a, almost a punk attitude towards yeah. it like you get to that thread and you you push that thing and you're like ah like there's something Yes. So yeah, punk mysticism is maybe what we want. Yeah, maybe and, and that's kind yeah. of what Tillich was trying to do. Tillich's existential theology was, in a sense, trying to take mysticism and mix it with that radical 20th century kind right. of like, holy shit, you know, what we've gone through. So yeah, punk, yeah. punk mysticism, there you go. But punk theology is pretty good too. That's, <laughs> that's Barring, that. yeah. Barring a near horrific future, uh, 
yeah. in terms of similar World War One and World War Two experiences <laughs> with North Korea, China, and Russia. Yeah. Uh, do you think that with that in our rearview mirror, there's a possibility for society to be more open to mysticism with that just in the distance and not affecting the current generations? Yeah. Well, here's the thing about Tillich. I'll answer kind of more what I think Tillich would say because he's better than me. <laughs> and then maybe I'll, I'll have an opinion as well. But um, he, funnily enough, kind of says, kind of puts it the same way you do. Like the bar, some crazy shit. Um, he doesn't think it's either possible or desirable. So for Tillich, he thinks that the first way anxiety hits us, the most simple way, is death. Death and, you know, the fact that we're going to die and maybe we'll die tomorrow, right? Americans are really good at ignoring death. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, we yeah. keep it at the farthest <laughs> yeah, distance. Like, right. away, we absolutely. put dying people away like, and yeah, don't go near them. Beckers and, the denial of death. That's a good We don't have yeah, wakes yeah. like yeah, we talked about right, this morning. Yeah. Like, we just try to ignore death altogether. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good. Me yeah. too. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I'll never die. But, but he's just like, in one sense, that's that. The Stoics were the ones mm. who really helped overcome some of that in the past, right? right. But then he said anxiety raised its head with, with guilt and condemnation, and he primarily oh, sees man. that connected with the, <laughs> with the <laughs> Protestant right. tradition, Presbyterian, Protestantism right. and Luther. It and hit a thread, it hit that punk rock yeah. thread, right? And, yeah, and then he felt that, that Protestantism really kind of helped to like, you know, try to find a way to, to deal with that. But for Tillich then, he says, the 20th century's meaninglessness and purposelessness, that's oh, why yeah. anxiety manifests. But he said that he thinks that that is the, the widest and deepest form of anxiety because, you know, for example, if you're scared of dying, but you still know you're going to go to hell, right? You still feel <laughs> it. Then the anxiety you can cope with, you know, or even guilt and condemnation, but you still know at the end of the day you'll be forgiven. But when you have meaninglessness, and purposelessness, you don't have that. That on the can be forgiven from that. Yeah, you're <laughs> yeah. like, I don't know if I've been bullshit, right? Right. And Zutilic says that in one sense, that's the most, the deepest form of anxiety, the most all permeating. And then he says, but he thinks there's an answer to it. And his answer is, you affirm the negativity, you affirm the meaning that's in it. So mm. that sounds like humorous nihilism. It's kind yeah. of is. I mean, Derek and I really clung on to that concept. <laughs> humorous nihilism. Yeah. He's a member that's not here today. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. It, like Tillich <coughs> plays close to that. My, again, now I'm thinking on my feet. He would still say yes. Third World War, for example, or something might throw us backwards. But but in general, meaninglessness and purposelessness, which he thinks are the 20th century thing. Yeah. He says like. You ultimately have to be able to have an answer for that because that's the deepest and most wide-ranging type of anxiety you can get to. Um, and and if you have a religion that can not that can do justice to that, that can appreciate it, that can positivize it, then you've got good news. Right. You know. Um, and I, I do think in my own way Eastlake is trying is one attempt to do that I think Eastlake is only one attempt because it also has a style and mm -hmm. has a tradition that will will appeal to some and won't appeal to others sure. yeah, yeah. but um, but it, but they're attempting to I think find a way to to affirm that negativity one yeah. of the challenges too is finding that place to move forward with that sort of meaning but I, it, it, it seems like 
is there a way to do that without tribalism happening? Because it, it, we're tribal. Well, sort of that story you told this morning. That's from uh, the Orthodox heretic, or oh. the guy with the gift who prays oh. for people and they lose their <laughs> they lose yeah. their religion, yeah. right? Yeah. Or their their faith yeah. in the, this shallow so, thing. Speaking of Paul Tillich, Arthur told me that the they, they invoked in the prayer the ground of being. Like it was the most weird church service I ever been to. They prayed to Jesus, but they prayed to the grounded being. Yeah. Paul right. Tillich. That's great. Yeah. But, yeah. but but that tribalism seems to be something as humans that yeah. it's just hardwired in us. It's a defense something. mechanism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I see it as, in some of the, the study I've done on addiction and, and neurologists talking about not just isolationism, but there's a social isolationism and tribalism yeah. where I'm only going, okay, okay, I'm going to get outside myself and make friends, but my friends had better agree with me. Yes, <laughs> So you're still yeah, yeah, kind of yeah, isolated yeah, yeah. in your own ideology because we're so tribal as a culture. Yeah. I mean, you just open up this thing and you can find a tribe for whatever yeah. fucked up weird shit you believe. Well, I had to come you know? off social media because I find it so becoming so dangerously splitting and tribalistic. Echo chamber. Yeah. 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 I'm tempted by it. I'll, I'll be honest. Like sometimes yeah. I do that too. Yeah. Oh, no, I you take totally breaks from it. I do. I do. I get sucked right down. Yeah. People's fucking... And I'm trying to challenge people and get them to see, you know. know. And, and then it, it turns into... Yeah, everyone get like... You know, I get frustrated. You get frustrated. Like, oh, it's pretty... Then you're just in your head yeah. being frustrated. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I like. Like, whenever... You know, I was talking about today. Oh, I think I did. Yes. I talked about, you know, Tillix, this idea of how do we affirm life that's not limited... Uh, uh, you know, fixed and unrealistic and how do we like for me the problem with tribalism is just that is of course we're going to kind of get into groups but whether we kind of want to break out of them and, and listen to them that's why the Advancism Project you know the Advancism Project no? Mm. It's, it's, it's why I created like four decentering practices designed to, to do the stuff that I talk about. De- decentering? Decentering. Okay. Oh, yeah, I call them decentering practices because they decenter you, they throw you <laughs> off, you know. Right. So I that sounds like fun. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, 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 just yeah. throw me off. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I hear an episode coming up. Let's yeah. do this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Advancement Project is where we go to be evangelized by another community. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard you talk about it. Yeah, I've heard you talk about it too. But please. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, so in the, it's not so much being evangelized by the other community. Like the Jewish community or something to become Jewish which they do not want the last thing the Jewish community wants is not, it's like it takes them years it's a real hassle it's a real headache right. and they don't understand why you would want to do it it's like what the hell would you do it? I mean, what's in, wrong with you and if you're not already circumcised it's yeah, just a mess it's, like, yeah. it's awful but, um, but it's about you know asking them what, how do you see us how do you see the Christian community and once you see yourself through their eyes and see oh my goodness then you're evangelized more into your faith you know Christianity yeah. but why was I saying that oh yeah so it's admitting yeah we're in groups but the advances in project is an attempt to to listen to the the other the other other is and then realize social vice what's that the other social vice in a way right what do you mean so you're you're walking into like I've heard what you talk about but I guess maybe I'm thinking in social media circles like there's almost a social vice in believing that I don't know. There's there's all sorts of different like Facebook groups you can join. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, all Christians are idiots. Oh, yeah, dot yeah. com, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a social vice there, and you 
going into that and trying to understand where they're coming from. Yes, I mean, that's yeah, different than like Muslim <laughs> trying to be converted. Like convert yeah. me to, yeah. to being a and that Muslim might happen. Or, I mean, there's like obviously there's nothing wrong if someone wants to, to convert to something, but but the main thing is always going like I need your eyes to see myself, uh, and I need yeah, other people's eyes to see myself, and so yeah. if I see myself through the other's eyes, I'll, I'll learn and be challenged by that to, to be transformed. That's so, a little like that new Sarah Silverman show. Which I, I haven't seen the show yet, but I saw the trailer, and it's something like uh, "I Love You, America" or something was it called. Mm. Oh, and oh, the trailer had her like going down into like some family in Louisiana or Alabama or whatever, and you know they're Trump supporters, and and she yeah. basically just sits with them and talks to them, and asks all these questions, and is trying to get to know them, and and just exposing herself to people who just don't yeah. see the world the way that she does, right. and she's trying to make a show out of it, trying. To, I think she's. Trying to bridge the gap that, yes. that social media is yeah. creating, where it's it's really ramping up Dividing. the tribalism because, on both yeah, sides. Because there is such an arrogance, and like yeah. even I hear people like people who I kind of maybe am sympathetic to politically, but you talk about the other other side, whatever, as if like I know I love them, but they're like they're stupid. You know? they're, <laughs> they're wrong. I, but but you know what? I'm showing yeah. love, and I'm like oh, there's a I love them, yeah. but yeah. I think yeah. they're yeah. less there's than human. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what does a pastor call someone who disagrees with them? What's that? Lost. <laughs> Very good, absolutely. So yeah, so this would be an interesting show where you actually go, well, no, hold on, I'm actually genuinely gonna find out if I can learn from from someone who thinks completely differently from me. And yeah. here's the scary thing: is we probably would, like, you know, she's actually got this thing philosopher I like, but because like the, the real reason why we're scared of people who are other and weird is because it's not because they're strange and different to us it's because when we see ourselves through their eyes we realize how strange and weird we are yeah. so like at first <laughs> at first I think you're weird like, like you, oh, you went and you marshaled it and you did all that and then I look at I look at me through your eyes and go I'm really weird and what I do is like crazy so I'm terrified that you'll show how weird I am so I, I, I don't want to be exposed to that but that's the real fun is to I, I, I first of all realize I think you're monstrous and weird and then I see me through your eyes and I go like I'm monstrous and weird um, and so to create a space where that can happen is so much more productive whereas we're always you know we either I try to make you into a version of me yeah. or secondly I try to vomit you I get rid of you because I can't do that right because right. you, won't, you won't so either I consume you into my social body if I can't I vomit you yeah. or demonize you demonize you and get rid of you exactly or we'll hang out as long as you don't talk about your weird beliefs and practices (laughs) or or, or, you know what beneath all of our differences we're the same but in all four of those I'm right in the first three I'm right and you're wrong in the fourth we're both right let's have tea and biscuits right but the real challenge is to go like oh I think you're wrong but then when I see myself through your eyes I realise how bizarre and wrong I am (laughs) and that's that's where I want to get to but that's what we protect ourselves at all costs we do not want to see our own weirdness you know like we're invested I think that's what we've just scratch the surface of in yeah. our in our theology. Yeah. Welcome punk, to punk theology. Punk That's theology. What we're trying yeah. to do is that yeah. we are. Well, and that goes back to that dogma question you were talking about, where if you're not willing to admit your dogma might be wrong, then you can't enter into that process. Right. You you, yeah. you can't let some. You can't look at your own. Self. At the very least, you, you have to hold it with an open hand. At yeah. the very least, yeah. you have to hold it with an open and hand. And that's where sacredness comes in. Yeah. And I think there's something really interesting about that. And that's why we were talking about um, 
like, oh, we're we're interviewing a famous author, so we have Pete Rollins. We're gonna, you know, yeah. but there's something to why is he why is he famous and why does he matter? Yeah. Kind of the, like that conversation came up between yeah, Steve and I because he asks questions and he drives people crazy. But no, not just that. But what you're doing, what you're doing is you're entering into the sacred space of the individual. So the only reason why why you sell a lot of books or whatever is I not sell and, very many. And, I know, I know you don't. I know you don't. But the but and that's part of what's cool about you is you give away most of the shit that you sell and you weren't up there with a like most authors have a booth in the back oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did consider that I couldn't be bothered bringing them honestly I was like oh god I couldn't be bothered like right. bringing a big box. the man's gotta eat yeah. <laughs> right right but what, what you're invited to do in what you do yeah. is you tread on people's sacred space yeah. well, and I you're a safe place to do that respectfully <laughs> yeah and you know, I think you do hopefully. at least yeah. you do for me yeah. Is, yeah. is you respectfully Likewise. and you've done for for, for us at the table yeah. is you invite people into a sacred a, a, and that sacredness is I think maybe what you're talking about what we're talking about with the dogma yeah. is sure. the dogma or the icons in in orthodox faith are these icons that invite us into a sacred space that is existing somewhere in here yeah. that maybe we're afraid to visit yeah. I think that the world isn't ready for your work that's, and you're that's the be, way I tell myself all the time. The world's just not ready for you're, me. You're going to be appreciated after you're done <laughs> with all good artists. All right. Yeah, well, exactly. well, because so, so many of us are coming from a place, and Arthur and I were just talking about this, like like we're coming from a place of certainty addiction. Yeah. And so I can engage your work, and I, I can engage the questions, and they resonate, but then part of me is like, a small part of me, or increasingly smaller part of me, but but still a part of me is like, well, okay, now tell me what to do. Tell me how to move forward. Uh, uh, give me the magic pill, or, or yeah. you know, what's the answer? Yeah. And the answer is figure it out, or maybe there's not one, or it's yeah. nebulous, it's out there, and that's because not... I think that sacred space exists inside, right? And it's yeah. different for everybody. What you guys are modeling, more I learn about what you're doing, the more interested I am. I think you're really modeling, but is it? For me, another big move, because you're saying, you know, you're holding your, say, dogma lightly, say, hold that Christianity lightly, but then the second yeah. move is to go, well, maybe actually that holding lightly is Christianity. As it, in, should be. Yeah, it should be. <laughs> like, like, we talked about it before you guys arrived, uh-huh. actually, I think it was where, that there's this very, very ancient tradition, which is the truth. Of, of Judaism, for example, is that you are caught up in the antagonism of it. Oh, You're yeah. driven by the questions. You'll have a good old fight about it. And actually, the truth is in the non-agreement, but that you're all passionately taken about. Now, in the sense that you six people who are coming from six different places get together and publicly discuss and talk. I mean, i got to say, I don't know if there's a better model for what I think theology at its best is, or Christianity at its best is. is that right. That's the truth. The truth is, like, not if you all come to an agreement at the end. No. The truth no. is in the conversation itself, yeah. and how that conversation transforms and enriches you. It gives you insight into yourself of, oh, you know if I were to reduce it to one common denominator the, the, the one reason why I think it works aside from the affinity and friendship is all of us have given up the need to be right yeah, yeah. and if you give up the need to be right you can actually talk to someone yeah, yeah. 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 If you can give up the need to be right and then you can also give up the need to not be wrong yeah <laughs> right right and that's, that's, you know, that's where I've, yeah, I've been progressing into yeah because yeah. that's an ego busting thing is oh shit I might be wrong I think the other thing that we do that I think is really core and it's primarily represented by uh, Derek who's not here he he posed a question uh, a, a number of months oh, ago yeah. that we've been applying to a this. lot of things <laughs> which isn't 
what do you believe and having that conversation because that's what social media is all about is I believe this and I'm yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. Derek asked the question, why do you want to believe that's right? Yes. Yeah. And what does that tell you what about you? And, you? and what does that tell me about you mm -hmm. on why? So I can, I can either accept or reject what you believe, but I think the way more interesting discussion is why you believe it. Yes. And that opens up... It gets past that. Let's argue about content yeah. and get to really your soul. Get yeah. to get to who you are and what's important to you. Yeah. And that 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 question can be applied to almost anything. Yeah. Absolutely. Hundred yeah. percent. That's why I like where you've opened some discussions where it's almost like you're you're ready for that question as it might come from some people because you've started a lot of talks with. I, I disagree with myself. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like if you're going to call me wrong. <laughs> I've done it myself, yeah, yeah many times. Yeah. Funny, yeah. I mean, yeah. And it is, I mean, Kierkegaard makes a very good distinction between what you believe and how you believe mm -hmm. what you believe. And you go like, well, imagine, imagine you believed all technically the right stuff, whatever that might be, but you believed it because, you know, you just... You take it on board because you like someone who tells you that they they tell you what to believe. They just happen to be right, but you haven't thought it through yourself. Kierkegaard says, like you know, it's it's more about how does your belief function? How does it drive you? How does it inform your life? How does it enrich your life? And we're always caught on the wall of belief. And by the way, something you heard me talk about today is that you know it's a very ancient tradition as well, Christian idea, but it's in psychoanalysis that mm -hmm. we don't even know what we believe. Like <laughs> so we're all true. so clear about. Who believe this or that? Like, like you know, I know lots of pastors who, like one pastor in particular, who had to give up and do. He did a kind of a year giving up God for a year, and he already had kind of given up God, but he needed to create a space where he could come to know that. Or I know atheists who every I know one guy every time this he's on a plane and it shakes, he's like he's terrified he's going to go to hell. He doesn't believe in hell. He's very terrified he's going to go there. So it's like. We are we're complicated. No, we are. Yeah. With with base, like that. Whenever you're raised from the cradle with a belief, even if you consciously think you're free of it, unconsciously it's still there. So, um, yeah, it's a. I consciously don't believe in God, yeah. and I'm consciously pissed at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a big so one. true. That's a that's yeah. a very especially because you probably grew up. You'd say you grew up in a religious environment. So yeah, yeah you don't believe in God, but you're pissed. That's the psychoanalytic idea that if you're trying to please your father all your life and then your father dies Freud's like uh, my friend Todd Delay wrote a good book on this called God is Unconscious but like oh are you free from trying to please your father is it? No, not at all in fact no. you're still trying to please him and yeah. he's not there so you really go like I knew my father's not there but weirdly all my behaviour is trying to please him Yeah. and the challenge is how do you work through that stuff yeah. so what would you say to somebody where maybe they're coming away from close handed dogma and the ground underneath them is shifting and it's really jarring and they're struggling with losing their certitude how do you get to a place of living in that tension and just embracing the questions and the contradictions is there something you would say to them is like the way forward just practically speaking just practically very practical okay well this isn't that practical yet. Let's see if I can get somewhere <laughs> practical. But the, the we are talking to a philosopher. Yeah, 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 yeah it's so yeah, practical. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to. You know. and, and also with that, it's very true. And also, like, um, it's, when it comes to individuals, it's like really knowing it's the every, individuals. It's, yeah, everything um, moves. I know. But, but um, but a lot of what.
what I would try to do with the person is go like um, we talked this earlier about this about we, the person feels like they're unraveling they're falling apart they're questioning everything and the, the challenge is to take the on the way and go you're raveling like to ravel means to unravel it still means to pull apart but it's right. just, but you positivize an activity so what I would want to say is you know you're just as in search of authenticity you're, you're expressing just as much authenticity as you did when you felt you had certainty because you're questioning is showing that you've got concern for the world and you've got concern for these questions what you do by doing that is you you affirm that person in their question you don't try to you don't answer you you just go my goodness look how authentic you are that and look how how much you have an ultimate concern you have a concern for truth you have a concern for what is what is good and 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 what you're simply doing is you're taking what oh my doubt's bad and going like no it's courageous and that weird move of just going the very thing you're doing that you think is bad and terrible and awful is a move that many of us never get to yeah you know I sometimes will not question things because I'm terrified I'll protect myself so to say like you have the courage to do that and potentially lose your friends and family and career yeah. my goodness look at that and and that it can take a long time but a lot of it for me is just positivizing the negativity helping them affirm the negation in other words to see that they love life in the midst of the questioning yeah that's what Tillich means by the God beyond God so what that's interesting what scares Pete Rollins you're talking oh, about you know <laughs> absolutely nothing except for spiders like <laughs> spider cats <laughs> spiders with the heads of cats <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what frightens me? Oh. Because you, well, you, I mean, you just gave an example of, of you know, in that conversation, yeah. like places you might not want to go. But is there, yeah. are there things that, are there places you don't yeah. want to go? I mean, if, if, forgive me if it's too personal, but just curious, oh, like, like yeah. what? I think, and, and by the way, also like my um, my defense, we all have different defenses. Oh yeah, I know mine is um, sleep. Like so, if I if I have a conflict that I don't want to, and often mine are, you know, say around a relationship, maybe uh-huh. kind of having to work out whether you're going to be with somebody or not. Um, and I don't want to take the responsibility for that decision. I don't want to take the responsibility for for what I think needs to be done, or I don't know what needs to be done. Then I can sometimes, you know, go back there, and then my defense is like, I'll just have a nap. <laughs> I just get tired. <laughs> I want to go Some there. people get angry, some people go for a drink. I'm like, nap time. <laughs> so, and the, that's the funny thing about all of us human beings. Maybe it's whether I should do this job or I shouldn't. Maybe it's whether I should go out with this person or shouldn't, or whether I should break up with this person or shouldn't. But just like a lot of people, like I, I sometimes want to abdicate my responsibility. That's why Jean-Paul Sartre, by the way, said we're condemned to freedom because he said like he didn't say <laughs> we're we're free. It's wonderful. <laughs> you're condemned to be free. So you yeah. have to take responsibility for what you do and. We do want to. I want to open a book and find the answer, or go to a palm reader and find the answer, or find a friend to tell me the answer. Right. Yeah. But whenever I have to take responsibility for, especially if it's hurting somebody else, even if I think it's a, the, what's the right thing to do, um, yeah, that you know, that's the thing where I'm not. I see people much more courageous in that than I am. So that's just a very, very personal example. Yeah. In that vein. Um, one of the things that I that I think I've struggled with, and, I, and I've talked to my wife about, who's who's kind of deconstructed some of their past. So when you, I see a lot of people that thrive under structure. You see it with children. You see people who go to a church that tells them this is how you're supposed to behave. Uh, you see people who um, flounder in their teenage years. They join the military, and and you know, being told what to do helps them. Yeah. 
a lot of the issue that I see with deconstruction is it opens the book in terms of options. And then if you if, if you become conscious, especially as a affluent American, I mean, even if you're like lower middle class, you're by the world's historical standards, you're the richest people who've ever lived. Yeah. And so your purchasing of an iPhone can mean that some child in China is being abused to work. And as you raise your consciousness level and you you realize the impact you're having on the world, yeah. part of that is debilitating. Like you you don't want to make a choice like you were talking about. Like I don't want to be responsible for that decision. Yeah. And 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 the more you are become conscious of the impact of every choice you make, the that that's a debilitating feeling because now you're taking not only responsibility for whether or not I can afford to buy an iPhone, but whether or not I want to increase child labor in China. Yes. You know that kind of thing. Yeah. What do you? How do you, as a philosopher, philosophically address that yeah. kind of like responsibility level yeah. that you start bringing on yourself by becoming aware of your own impact on the world? Yeah. Like a paralysis by analysis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's very key. Like for me, what one has to do is bring one's own unethical nature into ethics. And what I mean by that is, if you're a nurse and you're in a war situation and there's a hundred people who need your help. You can only help one person at a time. You, in a sense, have to not give a shit about the other 99. Because if you do, you won't do anything. And there's people I know who are like this. There's a few people I know who, they're, they feel so much of what's going on that it paralyzes them. One of my friends, even if she sees roadkill on this road, it's, it's a symbol of you know the infringement of society and nature. <laughs> yeah. It's like destroys her, you know? Right. So there's an interesting thing where I go like, sadly, we somehow have to take that into ourselves that that we have to find a way of going even my ethical even my engagement in the world involves all of these uh, doors that I'm closing all of these paths that I won't walk and that's what again that's why Sartre says it's condemned to freedom because he says like whenever you choose something you're not choosing all these other things and we would we sometimes want to keep all of our options open but to get married you see you a relationship when you say you're married or something yeah. like that. Yeah. No, that's a decision that that's a courageous decision in some ways because it closes off others but then not getting married that's it's almost like going like I have to take that on board myself affirm my existence in the midst of all of that complexity um, and also as you said that also use structures of that's where tradition is important because you go like well you know we can't rethink everything from the grassroots up like every decision you couldn't do it so we work with a language within the books we've been given within a tradition we use that but we're also aware that that tradition doesn't grasp everything so yeah I mean all I'm reaffirming is the difficulty of being human yeah. and sure. having that compassion for the question asker too yeah like they get to that place where they're asking that question for a reason and then you're going to tread onto that sacred space and go why do you care that the iPhone was made by you know and how do you know that children are you know just getting into that place where you're asking that question coming from a very black and white background yeah. in Christianity and moving to something else I found a lot of freedom in kind of the Buddhist idea that your goal is to reduce suffering as much as possible for you yeah. and that kind of admits that yeah you're you're failing at it but you're doing it as you can within your sphere of influence which yeah, means yeah. it doesn't matter which cell phone I pick people in China made it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't get to choose how much those people make right um, 
Or me with I hate Catholics who abuse children. Yet there's Protestants who abuse children, and there's schools that abuse yeah. children. And anybody, anytime you have access to children, there's going to be a pedophile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, over there in the corner, yeah. not wanting to, us to see his hand up. Well, I think so, a facet yeah, I, of, I get that too. A facet of what they're talking about too is, you know, one thing I've done in the past year is I really committed a lot of last year to unfucking myself as much as possible, <laughs> and and part of that included embracing. Uh, uh, well, actually, Vipassana. Like I, I meditate like a Buddhist, even though I attend Orthodox liturgy. But, um, but is also like engaging therapy very actively. Yeah. And I'm realizing through just these explorations that I'm just riddled with guilt. Yeah. And I think that's part of the Protestant mindset. That's part of the American mindset. It's probably part of the human mindset, but definitely more prevalent in the West or in Protestantism for sure, probably. Yeah. And it's you know even we're talking about some last week. I don't think we were recording it, but like what are you do with your guilt and where does this guilt come from and is guilt constructive and useful to be a flourishing healthy human being because we I, I think we inherit a lot of guilt from our systems and our paradigms and certainly there's a lot of it within within Christianity and does that help us? Yeah. I know you've talked about that right, some, yeah, like yeah. I, 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 because it, it because it's not helpful. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. but it, but yet we're really but it with is it. like like clearly the Catholic Church <laughs> has leveraged guilt and it to make societal change. I think it I think it has a negative flip side to it where people. That's why but, you have to hear it, the first part of this conversation. We, we touched on that. Oh, yeah, summer. we touched on it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you guys touched on guilt already? Yeah, yeah, we did. We bit. talked a little bit about it. <laughs> we went through yeah. that. Sorry. A little bit. No, no that's, that's okay. It's okay. okay. Well, cheers. Thank you. Thanks, yeah, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, thank you. Thanks again, Pete. It's a great place to land the plane, as we say. I hope that's been recording. Yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Because yes. it looks there's no light. Oh, there is a light. Yeah, yeah okay. it's right that's, there. We'll be talking before we start the podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we think, damn, we should have been recording this. Because yeah, some yeah. of it is really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some of our best discussions. Oh, yeah, free yeah. that, yeah. Yes. I've owned the domain, yeah. it's funny, I've owned the domain Punk Theology for a number of years, about five years. And I let it go once because I thought, nah, who gives a shit? But there's something about all these different religious leaders over the years that were coming to me for answers. And who am I? I'm a fucking Uber driver, ex-pizza guy from Seattle. Like, yeah. fuck am I to tell Mr. Joe seminary doctorate, you know, why his penis is running his life? Yeah. You know, but they would because yeah. they heard me and they go, well, this guy's got answers. And the more, the more questions I got, the biggest non-answer I got was punk rock. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's what you're explaining almost with that parable of the art and the and the you know the, the two rabbis is there's something in the art yeah. that you're fighting in your own body, your head and your body. Because we always we're always focusing on the head, right? And it's everything below the neck that's broken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it punk positivizes negativity and by the way. Yeah it does. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Like my whole thing is um, that we when we first start questioning stuff we feel like we're unraveling. Yeah. But but then we discover that we're not we're raveling. Unraveling means exactly the same as unraveling, exactly the same to pull apart 
but it doesn't have the negative on. You're not unraveling, you're raveling. And so in one sense, what you do is you just positivize the negativity. You're going like, oh, the doubt, the unknowing, this, that's not bad. That's actually where the action is. Yeah. And there's something about punk that there's an antagonism in it, but it's a celebration of the antagonism. It's yeah. like, it's hardcore. And yeah, I love it. So it's a good, it's yeah. a good meal. These guys with a voice who got up, they didn't know how to play the instruments. Yeah. Oh yeah, they just, like, they, they two, have three chords. Two, so three chords and the truth and all of that. But they had, they had balls, they had arrogance, they had feelings, they had desire, they had antagonism, but and they they made beautiful music. Well, beautiful music's not the right term, but they right. made art. They made art with it. Yeah. Do you have a favorite punk band? Um, who, well, there's a few great punk bands from Northern Ireland. So okay. I should probably say this. Who's um, Stiff Little Fingers? Is Stiff, oh, I love oh, yeah, Stiff Little yeah, Fingers. Yeah. yeah. And um, uh, oh. Uh, who else is from Belfast? Because Belfast had, there's a guy called Terry Hooley from Belfast, called the godfather of punk back home. And he, during the Troubles, when the Loyalists and the mm-hmm. bomb, when basically for young people, the only options you had really, maybe as church, were paramilitaries. And, wow. and Terry Hooley came along and he and he, he, he brought punk to Belfast. So there's, there was always a very strong punk scene in the heart of Belfast. So yeah, that's there's some good bands have come Sort of, of a Belfast. who gives a shit whether you're yeah. Protestant or Catholic. Like said, sort of yeah. Terry Hooley said it was something like this. He said, "You know, New York have the, well, New York have the hairstyles. And he says something. Like, L.A. have the outfits, but Belfast has the attitude." And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah. And that's awesome. yeah. In fact, in fact, let me recommend this. There's a great movie called Good Vibrations. It's about the Belfast punk scene. It's oh, by cool. Terry Hooley, and because his 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 uh, record shop was called Good Vibrations, it opened and closed like 50 times. And uh, <laughs> he's still going. He's an amazing guy. So watch Good Vibrations. Good yeah, 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 I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah you bet. Pete, thanks, man. Thanks that for being on the podcast. Listen, guys, I'm, so, I'm really glad we got to do this. I'm glad I got to meet you and yeah, we likewise. got to do this before I fly back to LA, you know, and yeah. I really wish you all that. All right, all right, thanks, Pete. Appreciate you, man. I think the worst time to have a heart attack is during a game of charades. That's a huge bitch! Thanks for listening to Punk Theology. Don't forget to subscribe like to join us in having more ears hear this punk sound please leave a review on itunes stitcher tune in radio or wherever you may hear this fucking podcast punk theology is the property of digital audio project a limited liability corporation who is responsible for its content don't check it out i have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass and i'm all out of bubblegum oh.